pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to the scriptures. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you come and open them to us? Come and fill our hearts and our minds. Come and fill my words that we might be led to Jesus. We pray, Lord, in his name. Amen. Please be seated. I think I know the answer to the question I'm about to ask, but, but I would just start by saying, how many of you feel like you are really busy these days? Show of hands. I, I figure probably nearly everybody has the same response. Um, I think the most common approach people have to me these days when they come in need of something is they say, I know you're really busy, but it's almost a standard kind of way in which we engage. Pretty common. How are you today? Not I'm fine, not I'm doing well, not I'm sad or angry or lonely or whatever. It's I'm busy. It's actually become a state of being for so many. Well, as as I say that, I want to say to you this, is that Jesus, Jesus was a very busy man. He was incredibly busy. And at the point in which we find him in our gospel lesson today that I just read in Luke 6, verses 12 through 19, his ministry has grown to the point where there are thousands of people around him. People are coming from all over as far as 80 miles away, which may not seem too far to us, but remember, they had to walk there. That's a long walk to get somewhere. I I went on a long hike last summer while I was on sabbatical. I did a 60-mile hike. I did it in five days, and that's 12 miles a day. These folks are going upwards of 80 miles to get to Jesus, and they're doing it through the desert where there's not a lot of water. They are desperate to get to him. It's getting to the point where his ministry is very full. Verse 17 of our text tells us that there is a great crowd of disciples. So he's got followers at this point and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who have come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. There are thousands of people. They're coming from the north, and they're coming from the south. They're coming from all around, and there is this huge, huge demand upon Jesus. He was a busy guy. He was consumed with the mission to which God had given him. He was determined that he would fulfill what he was here to do, and yet, in the midst of all the demand that was upon him, in the midst of all the busyness of the pressing in, in the midst of the numbers and the people and the intensity of life, Jesus regularly withdrew. He pulled himself aside in order to pray, even though it meant leaving behind his cell phone. Well, you know what I mean. He left behind the needs, the press, even the physical and spiritual needs of the people who were demanding his time, he withdrew in order to pray. In our gospel, this is the third time in the gospel of Luke in which we see Jesus pulling aside. We first saw him in the wilderness, right, during that time of testing, the time of temptation. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he's tested, but he's fasting, he's praying. 
We saw him at one point after his ministry really first started out in Capernaum. The people are pressing in, everybody wants him, and he goes off to a solitary place. Here we find him out on a mountain, and we're going to see this at least five more times in the book of Luke, Jesus' prayer life. Now, that doesn't mean that eight times Jesus prayed. It's that Luke is wanting us, as he's trying to help us to see who Jesus is, he's wanting us to catch the fact that prayer is an absolute essential in the life of Jesus. Prayer was to him foundational in the midst, catch this, of a crazy, busy life. See, Jesus knew something, and he knew this. He knew that time alone with God, with God the Father, was, was not incidental, it was essential. It was the one thing necessary, his time alone with God. And that's really so different from the way that so many of us tend to approach prayer. We often see it as the last line of defense, like, well, I guess we should pray. Um, the last thing that we do when all else fails. I have a pastor friend. He told me a story about early in his ministry. He'd been at this church for a while, and there was a family that was sort of peripheral to his church. Um, they showed up generally at you know Christmas and Easter and baptisms and weddings and funerals. And, and so they considered it the church, but they weren't really known. They weren't engaged with other people. And the patriarch of this family got sick and was in the hospital. So he went down for a visit, and everybody was there, like all the adult children and the grandchildren. It's really a full hospital room, the way hospital rooms can get kind of circusy at times. And my friend has come in, and he's in his collar, so everybody knows who he is, and it's real stiff and formal, and everybody's sort of leaning back. And then the doctor came into the room, and the doctor sort of, I don't know, I guess he picked up on it, but he's explaining to the family, you know, we're not entirely sure what's going on, and we're running tests, and he can feel the tension, I suppose, or at least my friend thought that was what was going on, and so this, this doctor said, you know, but, but it, he looked over at my friend, the pastor, and said, but at least you can pray. And it was at that point that the adult daughter burst into tears and said, oh, no, has it come to that? <laughs> as if prayer were the last thing that we would ever consider doing. That's too often the way many people approach it, as though it's the last line of defense. But it wasn't that way for Jesus. It was more like his lifeblood. It was more like the foundation from which everything else, it was the source, and he could not and he would not go without it. Even though it meant often letting down people who were expecting things from him. Verse 12, we hear, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. In these days. In other words, it was at this time. Well, what is the time? If you were here last week, you heard the the account in which Jesus had us run in with the Pharisees. And he established himself as the Lord over the Sabbath. It was another way of him saying, I'm God. And he healed a man who had a withered hand, and he did it on the Sabbath in the face of the Pharisees. In these days, at that time, what time? At the time at which the Pharisees became openly hostile to him. Like that was the last verse of last week's gospel. The Pharisees discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
not what they might do about Jesus or with Jesus. No, 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 no. This is the point at which the whole tenor of his life and ministry shifts because they are so enraged, they're totally irrational, they are going to kill him. The ones who are supposed to be holy, they've got to kill him at this point. And it's from this point on that Jesus is beginning to move toward the cross. It's a shift, again, in the gospel, in the narrative that Luke wants us to see his death is looming in the future. And you get a little taste of that even in the selection of the 12 because we get Judas introduced, the one who will betray him. To whom? To the Pharisees. For what purpose? That they might kill him, that they might put him to death, that they might rid the world of this horrible man, at least in their eyes. Of course, it's the purpose for which he has come. It's no mere accident. He's no mere martyr. The purpose for which he has come is to ransom us, you and me, back to God through the offering of his own life on the cross, through his atoning sacrifice. And we just sang those two beautiful songs about the cross, several songs about the cross, its mystery, and all that happened to him is our freedom. All that he endured sets us free. It's the foundation of the world, and from the foundation of the world, he was always the Lamb of God. It was always the plan of the Father that he would be slain to rescue us for God. That's what's the shift, that that is the shift happening in Luke. And so in the midst of that, with the cross now beginning to loom, it's not immediate yet, but it's, it's on the way. He pulls aside, and he pulls aside to pray. Um, He's basically going out into the woods. He's going up on a mountain. He's going out onto a hill. There's mountains all around. It's a a pretty um, remote kind of area. It's a very, it's still today, a a very mountainous area. Uh, Lots uh, of places where he can get to be alone. And, And I think there's a couple of things happening there. Not only is he getting alone, getting away from the crowds, getting out into the woods, is so that he won't be interrupted, and it's so he can be as loud as he needs to in his prayer. And I think that that's important to understand. Prayer is not meant to just be this little thing we do quietly, all alone, right, in our chairs. It can be that. But there are times in which prayer is an outpouring of the soul before God. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus gave often very loud shouts and tears before God. He was pouring himself out because he knew now what is coming. The thing that he had come to do is on its way. And so he's out there praying and he's continuing in prayer. It says he continued in prayer all night. That was the word that captured me this week as I was looking at this text. He continued in prayer. And it made me reflect on my own prayer life I often don't continue in prayer. I often get discouraged in prayer. I often get tired of prayer. I often stop praying too soon. And yet here's Jesus continuing in prayer all night long before the Lord. Do you want to know how to get to the point where you can pray all night before the Lord? You have to start praying. The great news is that, you know, this is obvious stuff. 
You, you have to start. You start where you are. You don't wait till you've arrived. You start where you are and you begin to pray. You take on Nike's influence, right? And you just do it. You get on with it. You just start and you begin. I, I remember when I first started praying in earnest about 30 years ago, like I could barely pray for five minutes. And most of my five-minute prayer was childish and all about myself. And I can tell you, after 30 years, less of my prayer is childish and all about myself. And I said less, right? You caught that. But there is a kind of development that occurs naturally as you allow yourself to become real before God and allow yourself to grow in this life of prayer Over time, your capacity for prayer develops. And here's the beautiful thing. Your desire for prayer grows. I think that's the experience of all who have walked this journey of life in prayer with God. It actually, the most important thing is that desire grows. So that we're not doing it out of duty. Duty never works for long. But desire always works. Our hearts are made for desire. They're created to desire And so a desire for prayer will actually be the thing that causes you to be able to, you know, withstand and keep in it and go further to develop in strength. Now, as Jesus goes out on that mountain and he goes out to pray and he's praying all night, continuing in prayer to God, you know what he's really doing? And and he's doing it all through the gospel account. He's doing it all through his life. What he's really doing is he's modeling for you and for me what the Christian life is all about. Too many people, I think, make the Christian life about, I can't. Like, I come to Jesus, or, you know, I belong to Jesus, and now I can't. Can't get drunk, I can't sleep around, I can't use drugs, I can't lie to my husband, I can't lie to my wife. I can't cheat on my taxes. I can't, I can't, I can't. Those aren't good things, by the way. But so often we make it a life of I can't, I can't, I can't. And we wonder why people are not drawn to us or drawn to the church. If it's always about what I can't, I can't, I can't, then there's nothing desiring, desirous of that. But what Jesus models is this life of I can. I can be intimate with the Father. I can be in a right relationship with the God of the universe. And Jesus shows us what that looks like. That's what he's modeling. I have this relationship with the Heavenly Father. The God of the universe is available. You think about original sin. We go all the way back to the garden. Original sin is ultimately about independence from God. I'll do it my own way. And anytime any of our lives have fallen apart, we've gotten in trouble, it's always been because we do it our own way. I can do this. I've got this. I'm in control. I don't need to be dependent. And even if we don't say it that consciously, we live it out. And that's wherein we get into all sorts of trouble. But Jesus models dependence upon the Father. Because of what he has done at the cross, you now have total access to God. That's what's astounding. We don't see that yet at this point in the gospel, but that is what he died to give us. Not just go to heaven when you die. 
It's so that the wall of separation falls now between you and God. So that the thing that would keep you from intimacy with the Lord can come down. So that you have access to the Father's heart at all times. Hebrews 10 says, we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way he opened for us through his flesh. Therefore, let us come boldly to him in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. See, you'll know that you're growing in your intimacy with God when you're no longer afraid to come before God. Now, when you come before God, surely the things that separate you from him come up. They're exposed, but not so that you can be squashed or shamed so that you might give them to Christ at the cross and be relieved of those things, so that a new and developing intimacy, an ever-growing intimacy with God can be in your life. We live in forgiveness as restored children. There's a story about a little girl who just, I mean, she was nuts for cookies. And she just always, when they were around, she was going to get them. There was a cookie jar in the kitchen, and... Like, she just could not resist. She just had to go get a cookie. And, and her father was kind of harsh. And he'd catch her between meals, sneaking a cookie, and he'd just, you know, come down on her. Really come down on her. And, and so he thought, well, I'll, I'll show her. And so he made this big sign in bold black letters, God is watching you, and he put it over the cookie jar. And sure enough, she went and she got a cookie and there's the sign and she's there cowering under the sign eating her cookie with tears coming down her eyes, at which point her grandmother came in and she asked grandmother, is, is God really watching me? And her grandmother said, oh yes, but it's because he can't take his eyes off of you. You see, there's a fundamental shift that goes on in our hearts when we enter into the forgiveness that is ours because of Jesus for what he has done for us on the cross. But we still have our hand in the cookie jar from time to time, of course. But in those times, it's not under the shame and fear of punishment, but knowing a God who loves us, whose eyes are always on us, we have access to the Heavenly Father. We can come boldly now. Why? Because our hearts can be sprinkled clean By our repentance, by our actions, by our good works. No, by the blood of Jesus through the cross where he purchased us for God. And we can live in a place of forgiveness, in a restored relationship with him, of ever-growing intimacy. Well, let's think for one more moment about what Jesus accomplished in that all-night prayer vigil that he had that evening. Verse 13 as when day came, he called his disciples. Remember, there are many of them at this point. In fact, it says there are a whole lot of them. And he chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, right? And then it goes on, Simon, and who's named Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest of the guys. See, Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to do. And he knew the next steps in God's plan. And why was that? Because he spent time with God in prayer. He availed himself to hear the Father's plan. And what was accomplished was that he gathered a small group 
We'll call it Jesus's life group. That's what we call these things. He gathered a group of people around him with whom he could be very intentional. Very intentional about what? Intentional about teaching them about who the Father is and who they really are because of their faith in him. Intentional about teaching them the ways of God's kingdom, the principles by which it operates, what our privileges are, what our rights are. For what reason? Because Jesus wasn't always going to be here in the body. And so he's passing on to them what he would have them carry on to others. And it's why we do what we do at Holy Cross. He's modeling a life of discipleship. And it doesn't just happen in this big setting. This is good for teaching. This is good for worship. This is good for communion. This is good for corporate prayer. But it's not where the life of discipleship happens. That has to happen in smaller numbers. And so right here at this crucial point in the life of Jesus, we see the very plan of God is that there would be small groups of people into whom he could pour his life and then they would eventually have small groups of people around them into whom they could then pour their life to pass on the things of God. That's why we're here today, by the way, because they learned the lesson and then they passed it on to others. His call is that we would be like them. We become disciples who make disciples. So let's do this. Let's apply in all these scriptures about about prayer, but particularly this section in Luke 6. Let me just ask a few questions. Are you growing in your dependence upon God? Are Are you relying less and less upon your own self and what you can accomplish in this life? Are you, are you learning to be dependent? Now, you're not going to find a whole lot of books at Barnes & Nobles or on Amazon that say how to be dependent, how to be humble, how to be less. That's the opposite of the world. The world takes its cues from the garden, we'll be independent and we'll do it ourselves. But disciples become dependent, dependent upon God. Is that growing in your life? Are you learning to be intimate with God through prayer? Is that growing? Just like in any relationship, it requires time. It requires conversation. It requires learning the ways of the other. And of course, for us, that will involve time in the scripture. But just time, just time. Think about my son, and when he was little, like, I've always been a person who has my time with God in the morning. I'm a morning person. Like, don't talk to me after 10. Forget it. I'm done, 10 at night. But you want to have a conversation around 5.30 a.m., I'm, I'm good to go. Cup of coffee, right? So when they were little, particularly, I'd get up, and he had this radar for me. And, and like, I would be up, and he would be up. So... I would get up a little bit earlier so that I could have my time with God before he got up. Well, guess what would happen? Well, he would just get up earlier. And, and I watched this happening over time where pretty soon I'm getting up at like four in the morning and he's up with me and, and nobody's having time with God. 
And I got really frustrated for a bit because sometimes I'm selfish. But mostly, I, I wanted my time with God until it occurred to me, oh my goodness, he's modeling for me the very thing that God is asking. He just wants to be with his father. It was his desire, and he didn't mind the cost. And, and so I would just ask, is that developing within you, that desire to be with your Father in heaven who loves you, who cannot take his eyes off of you, and who through the blood of Jesus' cross has taken away the barriers that would keep you from him? Do you bring your important decisions to God and wait on him as long as it might take to receive an answer? I don't mean, you know, should I wear this pair of shoes today? That's not what I'm talking about. Wear whatever shoes you want, as long as they make sense and they're, you know, they're fashionable, whatever. <laughs> I don't know how you pick shoes. They're brown. Right? But, but, like, are you learning to let those important decisions, life decisions, you know, not just make your to-do list and then decide. There are times for that. But are you learning to bring those before God and to wait? with the expectation that he will answer because he's a good God and he's interested. And it's not just out of fear I'm going to do the wrong thing, but because I am learning to be dependent and because I want to fulfill your purpose for my life in this important decision, Lord, what would you have me to do? Is that increasing in your life? Friends, if Jesus, catch this, if Jesus needed to do these things, then we who are his followers, how much more do we need to do these things too? Let's pray. Lord, think deeply in our hearts your call. And Lord, would you build within us desire that we would live from a place of I can and I get to and not from a place of I can't or I have to. Would you cause us, Lord, to see you, Jesus, as you are, and in so seeing you, make our hearts fall deeply in love with you, deeply grateful to you. And then, Lord, teach us the deep ways of your kingdom so that we might teach others. For your sake, Lord, and in your name, we pray these things. Amen.